Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're medical historians, but for the purpose of these podcasts, you can think of us as disease detectives hunting down viral mysteries. The first series of Going Viral is all about the 1918 Spanish influenza. It's one of the deadliest pandemics in history, and it happened 100 years ago. So this seems like the right time to interrogate everything about it. The science, the history, even the art of the Spanish flu. Yet we're effectively flu nerds. I'm researching the Spanish flu for my PhD. And I'm obsessed with pandemics. I've been researching and writing about them for years now. And after listening to our series, there won't be anything you don't know about the Spanish flu. Influenza is, was, and always will be a major public health problem. It's always in the top 10 killers around the world. And maybe the 1918 outbreak and all the horrible history around that might serve as a reminder that this was not something that just happened in the dusty archives of the past, but that this could happen again. Episode 1, Bringing Up the Bodies. In this first introductory episode, we're going to hear about ice mummies found in the Italian Alps. I witnessed a funeral of two young soldiers whose bodies had melted out of the ice, perfectly preserved, blonde hair still attached to their scalps. And why one of the world's leading virologists brought up the body of Sir Mark Sykes, a famous diplomat who died 100 years ago. The gravesite was covered with an exhumation tent, disinfection, bowls, sprays, only people with Category 3, the yellow outfits that you see with Ebola. But first, you might well ask, why should we care about Spanish flu if it occurred so long ago? Well, one of the answers lies with the title of this series, The Mother of All Pandemics. The mother of all pandemics probably originated from Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War of the mother of all battles. This is Jeffrey Taubenberger. He's a molecular pathologist and leading authority on the Spanish flu. It was Jeffrey who coined the term based on his research. All subsequent human virus infections are all directly attributable to the original 1918 mother virus. So that one emergence of a virus probably from a bird through some pattern of adaptation into humans 100 years ago has led to hundreds of millions of flu deaths over the last century. And we're sitting here now in February in Washington, D.C. at what is hopefully the end of a, a pretty bad seasonal flu, an H3N2, but presumably some of the genes of the 1918 virus are in that. Five of the eight genes of the H3N2 virus are directly from the 1918 virus. They were updated with three new genes from an unknown bird virus in 1968. And then that new virus, the H3N2 virus, has been the dominant human flu virus in the last 50 years and does not seem to have run out of tricks yet. So that's really fascinating. Flu viruses today, like the H3N2 virus or the Aussie flu, are actually living history. They trace directly back to the 1918 Spanish flu. Exactly. I mean, if we're going to devise vaccines against the current circulating flu strains, then we need to understand why the Spanish flu was such an efficient killer. So it's easy to get bogged down with the viral aspects of this, but something we mustn't forget is the human impact that this virus had. Between the spring of 1918 and the winter of 1919, the Spanish flu killed a quarter of a million Britons and 675,000 Americans. Wow. I mean, and worldwide, the death toll was even higher. They think at least 50 million people died. That's five times as many as were killed in the fighting in World War One. 
and it's about 10 million more than AIDS has killed in nearly 40 years. So it was a true global pandemic, with the exception of a few isolated islands, such as American Samoa and St. Helena. No one escaped the scourge of flu in 1918. I found a letter in the archives at the Imperial War Museum. It's from a GP's son from Fleetwood in Lancashire, UK. It was written in the 1970s and he recalled, my father was a GP during the Spanish influenza epidemic. There were no antibiotics, so my hours were spent taking round bottles of medicine to the houses of his patients. So many were ill that only the worst could be visited. People collapsed in their homes, in the streets, and at work. Well, many never regained consciousness. All treatment was futile. And the weird thing is, at the time, nobody really gave the flu much attention, and compared to the war, it's been called an overshadowed killer. And this is a paradox that I've been grappling with for a few years now. I've had interesting conversations with many people about this. Jeffrey Taubenberger is interested in similar historical questions. Alfred Crosby, a historian who's written about the 1918 flu extensively, suggested that the outbreak and the disease was too fast to be romantic. And what he meant by that was consumption of tuberculosis was romanticized in the 19th century. How many operas and books and novels have consumption as its theme, just like in the 80s, the HIV-AIDS outbreak and its long clinical course was romanticized in some ways. The 1918 flu was this blitzkrieg outbreak. People got sick and then they either got better or they died in a short period of time. It was coming at the end of World War I and there just wasn't time for it to sink into the consciousness. Anyway, this is Alfred Crosby's idea. The story starts for me the summer of 2013, I think it was, when I was living in Switzerland and I'm a science journalist. This is Laura Spinney a science writer who's just written a book called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Laura became interested in the flu almost by accident when she was researching another story from the First World War. And so I made a trip to the Italian Alps to meet a team there who were basically collecting First World War battlefields that were melting out of the ice at above 3,000 metres. These were the sort of vestiges of a little-known chapter of the First World War called the White War, where the Austro-Hungarians and the Italians fought at those extraordinary altitudes. And it was a terrible war. More people died of avalanche and frostbite than died of conflict, and they were fighting backwards and forwards over months for centimetres. And nobody really cared about them up there. They were completely forgotten by people down below. I witnessed a funeral of two young soldiers whose bodies had melted out of the ice, perfectly preserved, Austrians, blonde hair, still attached to their scalps, about 18 years old. And so we had a funeral for them in an alpine village. And lots of people came to this funeral because we didn't know who they were, they were unidentified, and they could have been the great-grandfathers or grandfathers of people who were attending that funeral. So it was extremely moving to be at, presumably, one of the last funerals of soldiers of the First World War. While it seems these soldiers probably died of battle wounds, this was the beginning of Laura's interest in the science of the First World War, which led her to the Spanish flu. But Laura's book begins with a different funeral, that of the French poet Guillaume Apollinaire. He invented the term surrealism and inspired the artists Pablo Picasso and Marcel Duchamp. 
Guillaume Apollinaire survived military service in the First World War just because he had a shrapnel wound to his head and then underwent trepanation, which is basically when the surgeons drilled a hole in his skull in order to relieve pressure. He survived all of that and then at the age of 38 caught and died of, within a few days, the Spanish flu. So the age at which Apollinaire died as a young adult is really typical for Spanish flu. Another very good example is the Austrian artist Egon Schiele, who died at the age of 28. He almost certainly got flu from his pregnant wife. She died, and then three days after her funeral, he also died. In 1919, Britain's then chief medical officer, George Newman, pointed out this toll that the flu was taking on young adults when he said it came like a thief in the night and stole treasure. Anyway, let's get back to Apollinaire's funeral. They had the funeral in the church of St. Thomas Aquinas off the Boulevard Saint-Germain, and the cortege came to transport his coffin to Père Lachaise Cemetery in a different part of Paris. They basically ran into the armistice crowds who were celebrating the signing of the armistice. And these people were partying like you can't imagine. They were drinking and dancing and kissing and waving the tricolore, the French flag, and they were shouting Amour Guillaume to death with Wilhelm, which was the name of the Kaiser, Guillaume in French. But obviously, uh, to hear that for the friends of Guillaume Apollinaire, who was dead of the flu. It would have been mortifying, wouldn't it? Death to Guillaume, and Guillaume has just died. Mortifying, mortifying, literally. And very surreal, I think, because here they are, they're trying to celebrate the death of a friend, but also a great thinker, someone who had changed the way that artists thought at that time. And physically, they ran into this crowd, and mentally, they ran into a much stronger memory already forming, which was that of the war. So these scenes that Laura is describing in Paris would have been repeated in towns and villages all across Europe. The second wave of the pandemic hit just as the armistice celebrations, the peace celebrations were happening. Lots of people were dying of flu, yet the overwhelming feeling must have been one of relief. Afterwards, it became far more important to validate the sacrifice and bravery of soldiers and nurses that died in the war rather than memorialise the flu. So that's possibly one reason why the flu wasn't better memorialised. Another thing I think we've forgotten is just how grisly these flu deaths were. Many were due to these really aggressive pneumonias and a condition known as cyanosis. They started with the ordinary symptoms of flu, headaches or throat, fever. That just quickly became aggravated. They had difficulty breathing. They would develop two little mahogany-coloured spots over their cheeks and then that colour spread to their face, out to the tips of their ears. They turned blue and the blue infused the entire body, then the blue turned to black. The whole body turned black. It was also audible. There was a death rattle in the chest. So they died essentially of suffocation. They died drowning in their own fluids. Drowning in their own fluids. Imagine your loved one dying like that in front of you. Yeah, it must have been just awful. For me, the person who captures this best is Catherine Ann Porter, who's the author of the novel Pale Horse, Pale Rider that inspired Laura. So the novel was written in 1939, and it revolves around the relationship between a Denver newspaper reporter, Miranda, in the book, and her fiancé, a young soldier named Adam. And it's based closely on Porter's own experience. She herself was close to death so close to death that her colleagues set her obituary in type. wonder if she uh, enjoyed reading that after she was recovered. 
Shall we hear a little bit of the story? Her mind tottered and slithered again. Broke from its foundation and spun like a cast wheel in a ditch. She sank easily through deeps and deeps of darkness until she lay like a stone at the farthest bottom of life, knowing herself to be blind, deaf, speechless, no longer aware of the members of her own body. Blind, deaf, speechless. Just when Miranda's no chances of recovery seem all lost, she wills herself back into the land of the living. Pain returned, a terrible, compelling pain, running through her veins like heavy fire. She opened her eyes and saw pale light through a coarse white cloth over her face, knew that the smell of death was in her own body, and struggled to lift her hand. The smell of death was in her own body. Own body. Own body. Own body. And struggled to lift her hand. So we've got one more person to introduce you to in this episode of Going Viral, and that's the British virologist John Oxford, Professor Emeritus at the Barts and London Hospital. Are you, are you going to be here or are you going out? So John's dedicated his long and distinguished career to understanding the origins of the Spanish flu. And I first got to know John in 2005 during the bird flu outbreaks spreading across Southeast Asia. I'll never forget visiting him in his office in East London and his giving me a tutorial on virology. He was sitting on your desk in the Bancroft building at Queen Mary. Do you remember? Yeah, I, yeah. I remember. So he's now retired and living in Finchley, but John still keeps a wooden model of the virus on his desk. You can get a long way with the model. In fact, my first version of the model was paper mache. And for years, I would take it around, even internationally at that stage, I could get onto a plane with it. Until one day, I went to get on British Airways to go to New Zealand. They said, what's that? And I said, what's a model flu virus? And the man said, well, it looks like a mine. And you're not getting on with it. I said, well, it's made of paper. <laughs> and so from then on, I realised it's going to be tricky with the model. So I only nowadays use them in England. So how did John get into studying flu in the first place? It was chance. And my friend, Ron Daniels, from the National Institute, was on the lookout for early samples of polio. And he'd learnt that the London hospital, that's where I was working, had the biggest pathology collection of possibly any hospital in the world. And the fact of the matter was that everyone going into that hospital for any disease, even if they were knocked over by a milk cart from about 1870 onwards, a post-mortem was done. It was almost the same, brain, kidney, liver, spleen, little piece of tissue about the size of a sugar cube. The tissue was fixed in alcohol to kill anything living in it and put into a little wax block. And there it could stay forever. I got a telephone call from Rod. Have you ever been to your pathology museum? <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't, Rod. Now, why, why on earth are you doing in a pathology laboratory? And he said, I'm down in the basement. I'm surrounded by millions of samples of blocks of brain. That's what he was after, because he was after polio. And he said, what I am doing is finding lots of influenza samples from 1918. And I thought, my God, he's, he's hit on something here. By that time, there was a technology available to look not for a live virus in a paraffin block, but you could look for virus genes. And it was like a dinosaur's footprint, the RNA, the nucleic acid. From that footprint, you could possibly reconstruct the virus. So the, the race was on, really. So John was trying to isolate the RNA in order to bring the Spanish flu back to life? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can see why this has been labelled Jurassic science. So this is a virus that killed millions of people worldwide. Isn't that a little bit dangerous? 
Yeah, it's a little bit like bringing back the viral equivalent of Jack the Ripper. Thankfully, though, the chances of finding live virus after all these years are pretty low. The race was on, really. Why did John see it as a race? Did he know that Jeffrey Taubenberger was looking for the same thing? No, no, not at this point. That came later. But, you know, like all scientists, John wanted to be the first. It was really the beginning of one of the craziest chapters in the history of virology. The question was where to find preserved tissue containing viable fragments of the virus. We had been looking for influenza genes in pathology samples at London Hospital. That is a bit tricky to do that. We had another big expedition to the North Pole regions, to the Arctic Circle. Someone raised the idea that people died in those areas and were frozen. So there was a possibility of exhuming a frozen body that's got influenza virus in it. We were not successful in Spitsbergen, as it happened. But those are expensive. I mean, we've spent a quarter of a million pounds going to Spitsbergen for an expedition. When we came back, the exhumation team said to me, well, why don't you look closer at home? Because we found very well-preserved bodies that had been buried in lead coffins. So one of these people was Sir Mark Sykes. He was a diplomat in the British government in 1918. He was an Arabist, an Arab scholar, a friend of T. Lawrence. But of course, he's best remembered today for the Sykes-Picot line. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the agreement between Britain and France that broke up the Ottoman Empire. And basically, they drew lines through the desert and said, OK, so here's Iraq and here's Palestine and here's Syria. Yeah, it's a classic episode in colonialism, one that you could argue we're still paying for today. He came to the Paris conference in 1919, the great Versailles Peace Conference, as a diplomat and an expert on the Middle East, and both he and his wife caught flu. His wife survived and he died. He was brought back to England in a lead coffin. He was buried with a full military ceremony at his own estate in Yorkshire. The boots were put the wrong way around on the horse and so on and so forth. Full military burial. Sixteen members of his family gave permission to have the grave opened up. So we got permission to open up the grave and take samples from the lung, spleen, kidney, liver and brain. We had not appreciated at that stage that his wife died 15 years later and was buried on top of him. So we had to ask permission from the relatives if we could move Lady Sykes. She hadn't died of flu. We moved Lady Sykes out of the way. We got down to Mark Sykes and there was the coffin. It was lead, lead, lead. Everything was perfect. The only thing is it had a split in it. We think what must have happened was when they went to bury Lady Sykes 15 years later, they must have dug out half the grave and the grave digger must have put his foot on the coffin. Oh my goodness. Yeah, grim work. They're quite delicate. Could you just back up a little bit? I'm trying to imagine the scene. I mean, I've never dug up uh, uh, anyone's coffin before. Is it like CSI crime scene or something where you have all these sort of white barriers around yes, it? it is exactly like that. Oh. The grave site was covered with an exclamation tent disinfection, bowls, sprays, only people with category three, the yellow outfits like you see with Ebola. And the diggers will have got down and exposed the coffin. And our team would then take the lid off, that's the potentially infectious part, move the lid back, and then actually do the clinical sampling. The forensic pathologist would have a whole set of tools, saws and knives and all that sort of thing to get through the chest wall and to get the little samples. 
To give you an example of how careful you have to be with this, Sir Tatton Sykes, who was the grandson of Mark Sykes, said to me that we think that Mark Sykes was buried with a medal from the Tsar that he was given in 1914. Could they look around, find the medal and bring it out? And I said, yes. Standing next to me was the secretary of the diocese. And he said, Professor Oxford, have you got permission to remove a medal from the coffin. And I said, well, we got permission to move the lung, kidney, spleen, brain. He said, I know, but have you got permission to remove the medal? And I said, well, I suppose not in so many terms. He said, well, look, if you can get permission, written permission by eight o'clock, and this is two o'clock in the morning, from the home office, from the health and safety executive, and from the relatives, you can go ahead. But otherwise you can't. Effectively, you couldn't. No, we couldn't. So they couldn't get the medal, but what I really want to know is, could they get the virus? So, I mean, the $64,000 question is, did you retrieve any extant virus from his no, body? No, we have not. Oh, no, it was all sounding so promising. So why ever not? The body was not in good condition because of the uh, split in the coffin. Sometimes, even in a wooden coffin, people can be very well preserved. And it will depend on the, the soil, how the coffin is hammered down. Sometimes you can get half a body, and so you can get all kinds of curiosities. And it was that knowledge which still pushes us along to be very optimistic. But I, I would not now go for anything other than a crypt, because everything moves all the time. And if you're in a lead coffin, it's in a sandy soil, that just minuscule movements can wear through a lead coffin. And you wouldn't get that if it's stationary in a crypt. So John didn't manage to get the 1918 virus from Mark Sykes' body. But he's still looking for it? Yeah, incredible. Um, you could say that Sir Mark Sykes turned out to be a bit of a dead end. <laughs> Fortunately, several years before, Jeffrey Taubenberger had better luck. At that time, Jeffrey was working at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, D.C. But John first heard about him when he published an article in Science magazine. We opened up Science one day, and it was like a, a star appearing in the firmament. He came as a bolt from the blue for the science community. And that star was Jeffrey Taubenberger. Next time, we hear more from Jeffrey Taubenberger. He tells the incredible story of how he and a team of scientists brought back the deadly Spanish flu virus. It is Johann's estimation that this was an obese woman and that this, in a sense, insulated the internal organs in a way that other thinner corpses were not so well preserved. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust. 